If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find in your worship folder a sermon guide that will have the Scriptures printed out so that you can follow along. We have arrived at the Tenth Commandment as we close this series this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is an interesting commandment because this 10th commandment, it speaks about something that we encounter on a daily basis, on an hour by hour basis, minute by minute, moment by moment, and that is desire. We all have desires. In fact, it's something that every day we experience, a desire for something. It could be a desire for a nice, fresh, glazed donut. Could be a desire for a thick, juicy burger. Could be a desire for a Diet Coke. Could be a desire for a nap. Could be a desire for vacation. Could be a desire for a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Could be a desire for a healed marriage could be a desire for a functional rather than dysfunctional family, which is actually very appropriate to what this week is going to be about as we gather in family. We're full of desires all the time. And that's because we're created to be a desiring people. And so the question we have to answer is, how do you handle your desires? especially those desires that would fall into this category of coveting that God talks about here in the 10th commandment. How do you handle your desires? We're going to unpack this 10th commandment and explore this topic of coveting by looking at the meaning of coveting, the cause of coveting, and finally, the cure for coveting. So let's start with the meaning of coveting. The word covet here in Exodus 20, 17, it means to desire. It just simply means to desire or to take pleasure in or to treasure. And that's what the 10th commandment is referring to. And so you you could actually reread the 10th commandment by saying, you shall not set your desires upon. It's another way of reading it. You shall not set your desires upon your neighbor's house, wife, etc., anything that belongs to your neighbor. But what's important to note in this commandment is that God is not teaching the death of desire, or He's not condemning desire, as, for example, uh, Buddhism would. Right? Buddhism teaches that true freedom is found with the death of desire. That's not what the Tenth Commandment is teaching. The 10th commandment is talking about desires that have gone awry, desires that have become twisted or distorted. And we see in the Scriptures that desire is not a bad thing. And I want to I present just a couple of passages to you for you to see that God's not teaching the death of desire here in the 10th commandment. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, 
and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the desires of the world are passing away. The, the desire for or doing the will of God abides forever, right? It's not death of desire. This is even picked up more explicitly in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Desires of the flesh, desires of the Spirit. Right? God is not teaching death of desire here. He's talking about misdirected desire. See, the problem is not desire. The problem is misdirected desire. That's what Romans 1 teaches, verse 25. For they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Or, in other words, they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Right? Misdirected desire. In the beginning before sin ever entered the world in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve, man and woman, had strong desires because they were created to be desiring people. But the desires were never disconnected. Their desire for created things, their desire for beauty, right, in the world God gave them, was never disconnected from God. C.S. Lewis, he talks about, uh, he talks about tracking the the sunbeam back to the sun, so that the light and the heat and the warmth that the sun provides, right, should cause us to track back to the source, which is the sun. That happened before sin entered the world without a problem. Adam and Eve just, everything was integrated. Heaven and earth were one. And so desires were of, of created things all tracked back to the creator. It was all one. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, heaven and earth were ripped apart. And so man began to desire created things apart from the creator. That, that beam, that sunbeam, tracking the, the light and the heat that the sun provides and you track the beam back up to the sun, the fall disconnected that, which left us with this, this sinful ability to, to desire and love created things, but not to track it back up to the giver. Right? That's what happened in the fall. And so any desires that are disconnected from the giver and from the creator become distorted, become warped. And we could talk about how that's very clear in your own heart, in the world that we live in. And so coveting, I think one of the ways to look at coveting is it's a, it's a short circuit. It's a, it's a desire for created things that are short-circuited or disconnected from the Creator. That that's what coveting is. And so the point here is that God is not trying to squelch your desire. This isn't about getting rid of desire. It's about reclaiming and redirecting desire. Now, it's important to note in the Tenth Commandment that it doesn't just say, you shall not covet. Right? That's not the end of the commandment. It's you shall not covet 
your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, on and on, or anything that's your neighbor's. See, this is a command that is about others, right? We've looked at it so far. Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments, love God, love your neighbor. When you covet something that your neighbor has, now we've arrived at what we would call envy. That you want something your neighbor has. And envy and love for neighbor cannot coexist. Now that may be fairly obvious, but it's worth saying again. When you're coveting something that your neighbor has, you cannot love them. Envy, which comes out of coveting, takes on two forms. I think comparing and competing. Comparing and competing. And I would say, this is not true across the board, but in general, I think women struggle more with comparing, men struggle more with competing. Part of that is how we're wired. So let me just address both for a second. Women, when you are comparing yourself with others, and when you are wishing you had somebody else's house, or somebody else's body image, or maybe even somebody else's well-behaved children, when you're coveting and, and comparing yourself, what happens is that cannot produce love for that person. In fact, the lack of love takes on several forms. In the passive, kind of passive-aggressive side, it would take on withholding praise, withholding encouragement of that person. The more aggressive would be outright gossip and slander towards that person. Uh, the, the more maybe warped would be this, this smothering of that person that can almost take on a strange codependent relationship that can flow out of envy. But the point is that when you are coveting someone's stuff, you can't love them. They just, they cannot coexist. Men, the same is true with you. Competing in the workplace for reputation, for power, for whatever it may be. When you're competing with someone, for example, in your workplace, it's really hard to build that person up. It's really hard to encourage that person. In fact, it's a lot easier to tear them down. And so what we see here is that coveting, right, at the core, coveting is desires or desires that have gone awry and have been disconnected from the creator. And what that turns into is envying and grieving at the good of, of your neighbor. That's what coveting looks like. Now, let, let's move on to the cause of coveting. Why do you covet? Colossians 3.5 gets to the root of coveting. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see what Paul's doing here. He connects coveting with idolatry, which is nothing more than connecting the Tenth Commandment to the First Commandment. And we've been doing that all along in this series, right? That, that idolatry, right, is a breaking of the First Commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Paul says, coveting is idolatry. In other words, when you break the 10th commandment and you covet, you have first broken the first commandment. Something, some good thing has become a God thing. Augustine is one of uh, the early church fathers in the early centuries. And he, he talked about this dynamic, and I think it's really helpful. He talked about this dynamic uh, as disordered loves or love that is out of order. And he says this. He says, the problem comes when you love something that you should love or desire, but that you should not love supremely. So, so coveting is when something that is, it's, it, it's a good thing. It's a created thing that God gifts you with goes from being a good thing to a God thing, an ultimate thing, a God-like thing. One author writes this in talking about this, this dynamic that we're exploring. He, he notes that it's very hard to figure out what you're really living for by simply asking yourself. He says you're never that self-aware. You could say, I'm living for God. He says, that's the wrong question to ask. What am I living for? Because it's easy to say, I'm living for God, right? We're, we're really not that self-aware. He goes on to say this, but the way you find out what you're living for okay, is not to ask that question. Instead, look at your nightmare. What thing, if absent, would almost or would take away your reasons to live? He says your deepest emotions, anxiety, fear, despair, anger, will point you to your God. Coveting is the perpetual pursuit of your God. And I say perpetual because it's never ending. Because in your pursuit of your God, whatever that is, you'll never get what you're really looking for. That is the definition of idolatry. An idol is something that promises you everything but can't deliver. And so coveting is that perpetual pursuit of your God. There's another cause of coveting, and I, and I want to make this shift because, yes, idolatry is at the root, but let's just make the assumption that you're, you're aware of your idolatry. You're aware of what you tend to run towards. And you say, well, Keith, I've, I'm aware of my idolatry. I repent of it, and it's rhythm, that's the rhythm in my life. What about when your eyes really are fixed on God, or you're, you're turned, your heart is turned to God? There's another reason that you covet, and that is failure to trust God as provider and giver. There's a lot of names that are, are used of God in the Old Testament. One of them is uh, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord who provides. It comes out of Genesis chapter 22. And it's when Abraham is taking his son Isaac up to sacrifice him on the mountain in obedience to God. And when he gets up there, God provides a ram for the burnt offering in place of his son Isaac. And Abraham, when that happens, names the place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. That God is a provider. 
And so when, when, you, when you fail to trust God as provider and giver, the result is coveting, which leads to envy, which leads to discontentment, which ultimately leads to bitterness. And Jesus discusses this, or Jesus explains this, explores this in two ways. This, this failure to trust God as provider and giver. He does it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he goes on to describe how the birds are fed, even though they don't store, store up in barns. And then he goes on to describe how the lilies of the field are clothed. And he says, if I take care of the lilies and the birds, don't you think that I'll take care of you? That that's his point. There's a, when you're in a season of life, and we've all been there, some of you maybe are there right now. But when you're a have not, and you're looking at the haves, right? The haves and the have-nots, and you find your place, yourself in a place of being a have-not, right? If, if you're not trusting that God provides and that God gives in his timing, your heart will run to, to comparing, to looking at the have and saying, I want what that person has. And I want it so badly that there's a bitterness growing in my heart for what they have. And at some point, that, that desire, that coveting starts to turn into entitlement. There's a progression here of, I deserve what that person has. I deserve it. So Jesus tells a parable that gets even at the core of that. And it's in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. He tells the parable of a property owner, a master who goes away for a period of time, and he gives uh, his servants a portion of the property to take care of to steward while he's gone. And so he gives one servant five talents, one servant two talents, and one servant gets one talent. Now, we oftentimes in that parable focus on how those servants steward and invest what was given to them, and that is valid. That's a, that is a point of the parable. It's what Jesus is driving at. But we miss the obvious, that they didn't all get five talents. One got five, one got two, another got one. You see, entitlement says, that person has five talents, why do I only have two? That person has two talents, why do I only have one? Right? There's a failure to trust that God, he's not only provider, but he's giver. And that he chooses to give. And when you're trusting that what he has given me is good, right, you're content. But when you're not trusting that, you can look around and immediately start coveting and growing envious and bitter and then eventually entitlement and it's a progression that ultimately just leads to death, which all sin does. If you don't believe that what you have and who you are and how you are wired comes directly from the hand of God, you will covet. 
Think about the commandment. It gets pretty specific. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. When you fail to believe that the home that God has given you, as small as it is, as big as it is, whatever it is, that the home that God has given you is his gift to you. If you don't believe that, then you will always look across the street or across the neighborhood or whatever it may be and say, somebody else has a bigger one. I want that. I deserve that. I'm entitled to that. God's a giver. Think about the second direct command in the 10th commandment. Uh, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, we oftentimes connect that to the commandment about adultery, and that's appropriate. But it's deeper than that. I would imagine that every person in this room who's married at some point in the last week or in the last month, in the middle of a disagreement or a fight or a conflict or a disappointment, has thought to themselves, I wish my spouse were different. I wish my spouse were like that person's spouse that I know, had that personality, that wiring. That's that's coveting. And what's that saying is I don't believe that God has given me my spouse and that he or she is perfect for me. Perfect for me. Or you go on to the uh, coveting in the 10th commandment, the male servant or female servant. That's coveting someone's employees (laughs) Uh, in your workplace. You have people working for you. Have you ever coveted someone else's employees? Right? I, gosh, I wish the people that worked for me were like that. Right? That's, that's, that's coveting. And it's saying, I don't believe that what God has provided for me right now is his gift to me. And it's the best for me. So coveting, what's the cause of it? Idolatry is at the root. A good thing becomes a God thing. And now I pursue it perpetually though I never get it. Or I'm failing to trust that God provides and that God gives, and then what he has given me is best. And I'm content with that. That's the cause of coveting. Let's move on to the cure for coveting. What's the cure for it? How do we overcome our coveting? Jesus finishes his little mini sermon in Matthew chapter six on anxiety and on failing to trust God as provider and getting anxious about what you don't have or what you want. In verse 33, and he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You see what Jesus is doing here. The cure for coveting is not squelching your desire. The cure for coveting is is the transformation of your desire to the kingdom, a desire for the kingdom first. Earlier in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he lays out the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, comes before, give us this day our daily bread. You notice that in the order of the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done, precedes, Give us this day our daily bread. Ed Clowney writes this in in describing this. The transformation of envy or coveting 
for the Christian is to desire honestly and earnestly that God's will be done in the advancement of his kingdom, no matter what implications this has in the way of physical bounty. Jesus is asking of us not less desire, but infinitely more. We are to covet Christ's mighty work among the nations and the glory of his coming again in resurrection power and judgment. Kingdom first. One of our missionaries that we support, her name's Carol Arnold, and she carries on uh, a mission of her late husband, Jack Arnold. It was a ministry started in 1997 called Equipping Pastors International. And after Jack Arnold had retired from the ministry, he and his wife Carol began to just wear themselves out for the sake of the kingdom. They started this ministry. They saw a need for pastors and ministry workers in small villages around the world who needed to be equipped and trained and their marriages encouraged and the word of God brought to them and explained. And so they started this ministry. And on January 11th, 2005, when Jack died, he was preaching a sermon in Covenant Presbyterian Church in a, in a suburb just outside of Orlando. And he had, just, he had just quoted John Wesley. He said this, until my work on this earth is done, I am immortal. But when my work for Christ is done, I go to be with Jesus. And then he said, and when I go to heaven, and in mid-sentence, behind the, the podium, he collapsed, died of a heart attack. His work for Christ was finished. It was finished. Can we be a people that are about the honor of Christ, about desiring, yearning, coveting for his work in our own lives, our hearts, our marriages, our neighborhoods, the city, the world? Can we be a people that are so consumed with the honor of Jesus, of, of his name being lifted up, right? That, that, that is at the forefront of our desire. That that would be what we long for, what we yearn for. This leads us to the second, and these are connected, but the second cure for coveting, right? These misdirected desires, and it's what we actually looked at in the children's sermon. It's thankfulness. It's thankfulness. Jesus tells the story in Luke 17 of 10 lepers that get healed, and only one leper comes back to thank Jesus. It's, it's the culmination of the story of God's people being delivered from Egypt from awful slavery, and as soon as they're delivered, complaining and grumbling in the desert for what they don't have, right? In fact, Israel's history could be somewhat likened, and ours as well, because we're part of it, to a donut. Right? It's that focus on the whole, what we don't have. When God's blessed us with so much. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says this, give thanks in all circumstances. Not just some, all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's the will of God that you give thanks. 
That's God's will for you, that you would give thanks in all circumstances. And the key phrase in that verse is in Christ Jesus. Because what that promises is what we read in Romans 8, 28, and 29. That God works all things, not just some, all things together for the good of those who love him. What's the good? Verse 29, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You can give thanks in all circumstances. That doesn't mean that it's not painful and that there's not suffering and that it hurts. It means that in that circumstance, you can be assured that God is working to conform you to the image of Christ and therefore transform your desires so that you can seek the kingdom first, that that can be your strongest desire. What it means is that we give thanks in all circumstances because, and this is what you have to believe, is that whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, it is God's best for you. It's God's best for you. And it's God's best for his kingdom. I work two or three days out of the week, I work right out these doors in the university center at the tables and chairs. And several years ago, I met a man who worked upstairs in the Educational Training Institute. Found out he worked up there full time, but he also pastored a church on the north side. He was a tent maker. And up until just recently, he actually quit that job and, and took a big step of faith to focus more on his church on the north side. But let me just give you the, uh, the greeting. Every day from Arnie that I would get when I was sitting down here and he'd walk by, it went something like this. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Arnie. How are you? I'm thankful. Next day. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Arnie. How are you? I'm thankful. That is how he answered the question every time, how are you? I'm thankful. You see, thankfulness is a discipline. I have a friend who went through a long season of suffering that was intense on a number of levels. And as he went through it, his, his counselor was helping him through it and encouraged him to start a thankfulness journal. And it was just a, a journal to, to give thanks, to give thanks, to give thanks for everything that was in his life, including the suffering. And what happened is that discipline of giving thanks over a period of time changed his perspective that he would say, he got to the point of realizing and believing that what was in his life and what came into his life and that the hand that God dealt him was God's best for him. The cure for coveting, thankfulness. I'm gonna show you a brief clip here as I close. And what I'm gonna show you is, it's, it's not of the highest quality, You'll see why. Uh, but it communicates the point. And it is about a 25-second clip of a young boy in Africa who is opening or receiving his Operation Christmas Child shoebox.
You know what was in that box? Many of you know because you packed a box. Pencil, toothbrush, little plastic toy from the dollar store. Can we be a people? This week is very appropriate. Can we be a people that are thankful that God gave us his best? That he gave us his most treasured possession? His one and only son? His beloved son? He gave him up for you. And if God gives up his most treasured possession in Jesus Christ, then how will he not give everything else up? And so if you find yourself today in hard times, in suffering, in bad circumstances, can you be thankful and believe that God gave you his best in Jesus and that what he is giving you now is his best because he promises to use that to make you more like Jesus and to transform your desires. That you would say, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done at whatever cost before I ask for my daily bread. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for our entitlement? Would you forgive us for demanding things of you and forgetting that you have already given us your best your treasured possession, your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And would we be a people this week that are thankful first and foremost for your Son, Jesus? And yes, all of the gifts and the blessings that have come from your hand. And for those of us this morning, and there are a number here that would not say they're in a season of blessing, would you, by your spirit, bring them to a place where they could say to you, God, thank you for this circumstance. Thank you for this situation because we believe that God, as you promise in your word, that you are using those to advance your kingdom in our own hearts and in this world. And as we close in worship, may this be the meditation of our heart, that all we have is Christ and that he is enough. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.